0: Thank you, Lorraine. Good morning. I was asked a number of times already today whether Archie and Mehitable would be uh, making an appearance, and they're taking the summer off. Uh, So if there's anyone who came just to hear them, now's your chance to escape, and it won't hurt my feelings. Not not too badly, anyway. Let's start with something we all know, shall we? The setting is a hill in Galilee. It's almost 2,000 years ago. The speaker is Jesus, and this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We'll come back to that in a little bit but now I want to tell you about an invitation I received by email early this year. I was about one of a dozen or so people who got this invitation, and it was from someone that many of the people here know, not everyone perhaps, Seth Polly. He's been here before. And the invitation that he sent out to me and to others started this way. As you know, he said, my dad died recently, Some of you have been through this with me, and others know of his death through other means. I've been writing about it from the moment the call ended with my mother, who called me to tell me that my dad had died. I'd like to ask you to consider joining me in writing about the deaths of our fathers. Now, all of the recipients, including me, were, and are, part of the baby boom generation in our 50s or 60s. And sadly, we boomers have been losing our parents at an alarming rate. I accepted the invitation, and I wrote my contribution to my friend's project, which he calls The Deaths of Our Fathers, One Man and the Men He Knows Writing About Losing Their Dads. My contribution to my friend's project is uppermost in my mind today because of what appears on the calendar today. Today is Father's Day. We've had Father's Day in this country unofficially for more than a hundred years, but it wasn't officially proclaimed until President Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1966 declared, and these are his words, in the homes of our nation, we look to the fathers to provide the strength and stability which characterize the successful family. And a few years after that, Congress made Father's Day permanent and said it was doing so to encourage people to show what it called the abiding love and gratitude they have for their fathers. Well, these are nice sentiments, but it's not as if we needed LBJ, or Congress to teach us to revere our parents. Instruction like that goes a long way back. Remember those stone tablets? Honor your father and your mother, and remember from the book of Proverbs, Hear, my child, your father's instruction, and do not reject your mother's teaching, for they are a fair garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And of course, we can't forget Jesus, who said a lot of things about his heavenly father, referring as he did to God in the Aramaic, calling God Abba, which is a word that children would use to refer to their father. It's the equivalent of daddy, or even better, papa. Now, in the Gospels, parents are generally portrayed in a very positive light, and as a matter of fact, the only two occasions that I can find in the Gospels in which anyone ever got the better of Jesus in an argument occurred with parents who beseeched him to heal their children. There was one mother pleading on behalf of her daughter, and there was one father pleading on behalf of his son. They're the only two who ever won. Now, we don't know how Jesus ever got along with his earthly father, Joseph, the carpenter. The Gospels don't tell us. We don't know what kind of father Joseph was. Jesus doesn't say. Was Joseph stern? Was he weak? Was he ineffectual? Was he jovial? Was he patient? Was he an exemplary father? Was he a disgrace? I'm tempted to say that Joseph must have been a good father, for why else would Jesus have used the earthly father-child relationship as his metaphor to explain God's love for humanity? But on the other hand, if a child has had a bad relationship with a father, one way of dealing with that might be to invent a new relationship with a different father as a contrast with unpleasant reality. Now we also don't know whether Joseph was even alive when Jesus entered adulthood. Now probably Joseph had died by that time. Although I suppose it's possible that Joseph was still alive, living in some prototype of a retirement home on the Sea of Galilee, grumbling about his firstborn child, my son the Wonder Worker. Heals the sick, feeds the multitudes, walks on water, but does he ever come to see the old man? Now that would be a real miracle. Probably not. Jesus himself gives parents, in general, a mixed but mostly positive review. In the passage that I used as our reading today, Jesus called the parents in his audience evil. But on the other hand, he flattered them by saying that they wouldn't give their children rocks rather than bread or reptiles rather than fish. But, sadly, as we know... There are indeed parents who, when their children ask them for needful things, respond badly. Maybe not with stones, maybe not with snakes, but with silence or doors slammed in the face or insults or worse. And Jesus must have known that too. You don't get to be a preacher of unsurpassed insight by being ignorant of human experience. He knew that there were fathers who were absent or abusive. Our society is not the first in history with parents who have ignored or molested or beaten their children. Since this is Father's Day, let me talk about my father and about what I said about him in my submission to Seth Polly's project. Some of you have heard me talk about my father before. Some of you perhaps have not. My dad was a very talented, very smart newspaper reporter and editor. He was drawn to entertainment and crime news, what I call the 5 G's. Glitz, glamour, guns, greed, and graft. He loved them, wrote about them all the time. He worked in Las Vegas, which is where my two brothers and I were born, and then in Los Angeles, which is where my brothers and I grew up. My father wasn't anything like the people he wrote about, though. He wasn't flamboyant or showy. He wasn't violent or abusive. He was a nice man. He was quiet, very quiet. He was funny in an understated way. He was very pleasant to be around. The problem is that for most of my life, he was a missing person. He died 15 and a half years ago in Los Angeles. He died in a hospital just a short drive from the last place that he and my mother and my brothers and I had lived together. My brothers weren't there at the hospital when he died. I wasn't there at the hospital when he died. We didn't know he was in the hospital. We didn't know he was back in Los Angeles. We didn't even know that he had been still alive to be in need of a hospital. We hadn't heard from him in more than 30 years. My father had his priorities, and those priorities had little to do with my mother or my brothers or me. His priorities were his career and his efforts to get his novels published. When I was five, my dad moved out. When I was ten, he got a Reno divorce, and those of you who don't know what a Reno divorce is, I'll tell you later. When I was 10, he got a Reno divorce from my mother with no obligation to pay child support. Highly dubious legality, that one. And when I was 12 and a half, I saw him for the last time. Now, I didn't know that that was the last time. I don't think he knew that was the last time, but that's what it turned out to be. I never heard from him after that. Neither did my brothers, except for one postcard that my older brother, John, had received from him about a year later. I heard that my dad had moved to New York, but that was little better than speculation. It was based on hearsay twice removed. As I grew into my teens and then into my 20s, I would sometimes get angry at my father unable to understand what terrible sin I must have committed for him to ignore my existence. But as more time went by, I came to the conclusion that he must have died. I thought that if he were alive, he would surely try to reach us. And if he had wanted to find us, he would have. Before he became a reporter, He worked as a skip tracer, finding people who skip out on their debts. He knew how to find people. But, of course, he wouldn't be looking for us if he were dead. And that was a distinct possibility because, like so many members of his generation, the World War II generation, he smoked. And he smoked way too much. Well, if he were dead, though couldn't really be angry at him, could I? You might ask why I didn't look for him myself. The answer is that I did look for him. I admit I didn't look as hard as I would have looked had I thought he was still alive. My efforts were in the days before the internet, or at least before non-computer geeks like me knew anything about the internet. I checked with a friend in law enforcement to see if there were any wants or warrants for him, and there weren't, no surprise there. I called the Alumni Association of the college he graduated from to see if there was somebody willing to look in the alumni directory, and there was. There was someone very nice, looked in the directory, found someone with my dad's name, gave me the number. I called the number in the directory, even though the graduation year wasn't quite right. It was a few years later than my da- than I knew my dad had graduated. But typos can happen, so I called anyway. The guy with my father's name was a physician in Wisconsin. And no, he told me almost apologetically, no, he was not my father. At another time, I enlisted the help of the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army had, an, and maybe still does, I don't know, but it least at this time it had a program in which for a modest donation it would try to locate somebody. Just so long as that search was not intended to collect a debt or to get somebody served with legal papers, they wouldn't do that for you, but that isn't what I was interested in. The Salvation Army told me that any contact would have to be voluntary if the search were successful The Salvation Army would tell the searched-for person of the searcher's name, address, and telephone number, and then would let that person decide whether to initiate contact. I sent my check, along with all the information I had about my father. I didn't hear anything from the Salvation Army for several months until I called them. The person I talked to said she had nothing to tell me. In early 2001, my brothers and I learned in a roundabout way that our father had died the previous December in Los Angeles and that he had left a house in a slightly rundown suburb of Los Angeles. So if he'd ever gone to New York, he obviously had returned. My brothers and I met in LA. One of my brothers still lives there, but we all met together and we went over to his house to take a look at the place. Dad's house was cluttered with magazines and papers and books, lots of mysteries, lots of suspense stories, some nonfiction, no Bible, no Bhagavad Gita, nothing of a religious character at all. He also left manuscripts for three completed but unpublished novels. And on a table, there were piles of financial records and other records, pay stubs, bills, receipts, correspondence, and bank statements. On top of one of those piles, there was a letter bearing a date of about ten years before. It was addressed to my father from the Salvation Army, and it told him that his son in Arizona wanted to get in touch with him. The letter included my name, address, and telephone number. So the Salvation Army had succeeded after all. My dad never answered the letter, but he didn't throw it away either. Now, I don't know. Maybe he had some unique filing system in which letters about children he hadn't seen in three decades or more had to be stacked on top of canceled checks from 1982, Or maybe before he went into the hospital, he found the old letter, thought about calling me, but changed his mind. Or maybe he just thought he'd worry about it later. In fact, that might have been his thinking over the entire three decades in which my brothers and I heard nothing but silence from him. I'll get around to calling them later when I can find the time, when I quit smoking, when I can publish my novels. Today, I have very little of my father's. In common with my brothers, I look like him. I have his last name. I have one of the books from his house, A History of Knowledge, by Charles Van Doren. And maybe this year I'll get around to reading it. But after 15 and a half years, what's the rush? (laughs) I have some photographs of him, including some from when he was growing up in Kansas City, Missouri. And I have copies of a couple of press passes issued to him by the Los Angeles Police Department in the 1970s. One of them I had enlarged and framed and placed on a wall in my office. The Press Pass photo was taken in the early part of 1976, before he got to his 52nd birthday later on in that year. When the image was taken, he was nine years younger than I am now. But in my mind, of course, he will always be older than me. Parents are always older in the memories of their children. And in my mind, he will always be very quiet and he will always be very far away. Some of those here are lucky enough to have had an ideal or a close-to-ideal father. My wife, Dottie, is one of them. And some who are here had absent or close-to-absent fathers, the way I did. And some here, and don't worry, I won't ask for a show of hands, Some had violent or abusive fathers. When I wrote the pre-sermon introductory comments, the ones that appeared in the Weekly Connections, I raised a question. I raised a question for those of us with less than ideal fathers question was as follows. The ideal father we're supposed to honor on Father's Day teaches his children how to pitch a fastball and replace a fuel pump, donates blood to the Red Cross, keeps his promises, and always, always knows best. Wait a minute. You say you didn't have one of those? I didn't either. So what should we celebrate on Father's Day? And that's the question. What should we celebrate? There is one and only one correct answer to that question, and the answer is, I don't know. But maybe we can celebrate the fact that a sad or a toxic relationship no longer has the same power over us that it once had. Or maybe we can celebrate that even in the least adequate of relationships, something is gained for which we should be grateful. Or maybe we can celebrate that even after the passage of long stretches of time, It's never too late to forgive. Happy Father's Day, Dad, and Happy Father's Day, everybody.